Well, good morning, friends. It is a joy to welcome you to our Easter celebration today. This is our sixth year here in this beautiful facility, and we want to thank you again for being here. If we have not met, my name is David, and I serve as a senior pastor at First United Methodist Church in Mansfield, Texas. And again, what a joy it is to, uh, to share Easter with you. Uh, you probably already know this, but uh, there are many events in the life of the church that are important, but there's really two that kind of rise to the top. Uh, one of them happens in December. I bet you've heard of it. Uh, the other one is what we are gathered here today uh, to celebrate. And, and between Christmas and Easter, there are a few differences between those two major events in the life of the church. Uh, with Christmas, uh, we have nothing but allies in getting the message out that Christmas is coming. Everywhere you go, uh, anywhere you go, you, you see that, right? Beginning a couple months in advance, uh, everyone's talking about Christmas. The, the clarity of that message may be a little to be desired, leave a little to be desired from the pastor's perspective, but everybody knows that Christmas is coming. Everybody knows what December 25th means. Uh, Easter is a little bit different story. Despite uh, what, what your favorite candy manufacturers are doing to remind you that Easter uh, is coming, Easter is a moving target. Uh, ha have you recognized that? You never know when Easter is going to be. Uh, and, then, and then you have a year like this year where Easter falls on April Fool's Day. And you think, well, does that mean it's Easter or is it tomorrow? So I thought we might do a few things, just some housekeeping things to, to help us out for future, uh, for future reference. So if you have your phone, you might pull that out. This, uh, this might be worth archiving or writing this down. Uh, here's the date for Easter 2019, Okay. So April 21st, you'll have uh, a few more days to do your holiday shopping for Easter next year, uh, April 21st, 2019. The, the other thing that I want to do is I want to I wanna give a, a quick shout out uh, to our sponsors uh, here today. So uh, Snickers Eggs, we want to we say thank you to Snickers, Snickers Eggs. You were here last night, Liam, and you knew I was going to do this, so you sat right there. There we go. The Fortners were here too, and there they are. Okay, here we go. I got uh, Twix eggs. Anybody? Anybody? Right back there. Oh, what else do I have? I think I think I have a few more pockets here. I got some ham. Everyone's excited now. It's it's amazing. Some Reese's eggs. Those are my favorite. They're gonna get there somewhere. All right. I think I got one more. This is the one I got to be careful with. So the Kit Kat bunny ears. The Kit Kat bunny ears. Kit Kat bunny ears. I'm really worried I'm going to hit somebody. Here we go. Right up there. Oh! The only reason I'm worried is because I was a youth pastor in my first job, and uh, I remember in my first year I had some CDs, and I threw them out, and I, I hit some girl in the head. So uh, <laughs> didn't happen this morning. Uh, oh, in the weeks leading up to today, what our church has been doing is reading through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and, and those words that you heard in the opening video have, have guided us along the way. A, a reminder that when we open up the Gospels, when we, when we read the Gospel of Mark, we're listening to the witness of one of the ones who was the first to dare to believe that the cross was not the end of this story. And so today I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn uh, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, as we listen to how Mark articulates the final chapter in that story. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, you'll see this uh, on the screen. Uh, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And now listen to verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, one of the first things that you might ask is, is what exactly have the women come to the tomb to do? In verse 1, uh, what Mark says is they've come to, a, to anoint the body of Jesus, but what exactly does that mean? And to explain that uh, to you, I need to tell you a little bit about uh, the burial practices of first century Jews. Over the course of uh, this journey, one of the things that I also had the chance to do was to lead 70 from our church to a, a journey to the Holy Land. Uh, and, and this one was, uh, was extra special because I, I got to share it with my, my 14-year-old daughter. I'll show you a couple pictures. Uh, the first one here is us uh, in Jerusalem. The, the Temple Mount's there right behind us. And of course, another highlight of that trip is the, is the chance to go to the Jordan River and have a remembrance of baptism. This next picture is, uh, is right after that uh, for Anna. Uh, there. But one of the places that we always go to, uh, usually it's the last stop, uh, is a place known as the Garden Tomb. Uh, the Garden Tomb, it, it, we don't know with certainty where uh, the, the, uh, the burial of Jesus took place, where the tomb was, but there are several things that lead us to believe that this could in fact be the actual tomb where Jesus was laid. At the very least, what you're seeing here uh, is a tomb that dates back to the first century and reflects what the tomb would have looked like that Jesus would have been laid in. Inside this tomb, in the inner chamber of the tomb, uh, you find uh, what you see here. Now, now, the gate there is not original. Uh, it's to separate the outer tomb from the inner tomb. But you see uh, a, a rock bed laid there, and that is where the body would be placed immediately following death. It's also where the body would remain for up to a year following the death of a loved one. Now, this is a little bit odd to us because it's not our practice, but, but this, is what, uh, this is what the Jews did in, in terms of bearing and, and caring for their loved ones. They would be placed on, in the inner chamber for up to a year. Uh, at a later date, the family would return and would collect the bones of their loved one uh, and they would place them in, in this next picture, in, in what's called an ossuary box. This is actually a very famous one. This is, this is the ossuary box uh, of Caiaphas, the high priest. That name may, may be familiar to you. He was the high priest uh, uh, at the time of Jesus. Uh, so this one is obviously a little bit more ornate, but this box, uh, about this big, it was, had to be big enough for the largest bone in, in, our, in our bodies. The, the bones were collected, they were placed in one of these boxes, and then these boxes were placed in the outer chamber of that same tomb so that multiple generations of a family could be buried in one tomb together. And as a part of that process, the, the family would come in the days following the death to anoint the body, to place spices on the body, to aid in this process so that ye, uh, up to a year later they could return and collect those so that, again, multiple generations of a family could all share the same tomb. 
Now, why do you need to know that? Uh, in the words of your favorite teacher or professor, that will not be on a test, okay? Uh, but it does give us an indication uh, of something that we could easily miss. It highlights for us that these women came to the tomb that day operating under the commonly, widely held assumption that dead people stay dead, that's why they came. They came assuming that Jesus, like everyone else they had ever known who had ever died, was going to stay dead. They came to participate in this practice so that later they could return and collect the bones of Jesus, place them in an ossuary box so that he, like everyone else, could also be buried with multiple generations of his, of his family. Now, that also may help you understand why the, the women respond in the way that they do. You hear in verse 6 and 7 this great news. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the person says, he is not here. He has risen. See the place where they laid him. His body is not there. You would think that that's good news. And, and yet, again, verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because because they were afraid. Now, if you, if you had been reading along, you know that three times prior to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, he predicted what was going to happen. He would said that he would be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They would condemn him. They would, they would pass him on to the Gentiles. He would be mocked and flogged. They would kill him. And every one of those things had occurred. But there was one more thing that Jesus had said, that on the third day he would rise. But none of the disciples, no one really understood what Jesus meant by that. No one really expected that that was going to happen in the way that it did. And the fact that these women have come to participate in this practice, this custom, is, is in itself, it highlights for us that they were coming to do for Jesus what they would have done for anyone else, assuming that dead people stay dead. And there was no reason to anoint a body that was about to come back to life. So they responded in the way that they did. Now, if you have your Bible with you, you might notice there's this odd note between verse 8 and verse 9 in Mark's gospel. I'll just show you what it looks like in my Bible. It says this, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. So at the risk of confusing you, let me, let me see if I can explain this to you. Uh, what this means is that of the copies of Mark's gospel that are available to archaeologists and historians, uh, there are a portion of those that do not include verses 9 through 20. And of those that do not include those additional verses, those also happen to be the oldest manuscripts that they have, leading some to wonder, did Mark's gospel originally end at verse 8, or did it end at verse 20? Now, this is not an incredibly controversial topic among biblical scholars, because what you read in verse 9 through 20 is the same thing that you will find in the other gospels. Jesus appears to his disciples. He commissions them to go and serve, to make disciples. It's, it's not a different story. Jesus doesn't go to the Mediterranean to have a weekend away. That's not what happens in the, uh, uh, the, the verse verses that follow, but there is this question. 
Well, where, where did Mark intend for his gospel? In the beginning, in, the original, uh, in his original writing, where did he intend for it to end? Is it verse 20, where everything kind of gets wrapped up nicely as it does in the other gospels? Or could it be Mark 16, verse 8? And if it is this, if it's verse 8, well, why in the world would he end with this? <laughs> Why would he end with trembling and bewildered? The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I mean, it sounds a little abrupt, right? I mean, it's sort of like the, the movie that fades to black and you think, is that it? Is there more? And then the credits roll and you're like, I got to sit here because there may be another scene. You know, you're ready to go home. But is this, is this it? Is this the end of the story? And if it is, just... Let's speculate. We don't know, but if it is, why would Mark, one of the first, again, who dared to believe that there was another chapter to this story, why would he end with this somewhat dramatic, just abrupt ending of the women fleeing the tomb in fear? Well, so we talked about Christmas and Easter, and I did mention, I did mention one other thing that's different about Christmas and Easter, and that is that we spend a lot of time preparing for Christmas, Right? I know moms in the room are thinking, yes, I do. I don't know about everybody else, but I do. I do a lot of stuff. You, do, you spend a lot of time preparing, uh, purchasing gifts that you're going to share with one another because that's a big thing that we do at Christmas. We love doing that at Christmas. And over the course of uh, the Christmases that you have shared with your family, there's probably been moments where you have opened up a package and you've thought to yourself or said out loud, this is exactly what I wanted. And the reason that it was exactly what you wanted is because you told your spouse or your mom or your dad or someone else, this is exactly what I want. You maybe sent them a picture, this is exactly what I want. You may have drawn them a map. When you go into the store, you turn right, it's back here because you, that was exactly what you wanted. Or maybe you did what my grandfather does. This is what he's famous for. He goes shopping, he wraps up a gift, he puts a tag on it, it says to granddad, from granddad, he opens it up, this is exactly what I wanted. Or maybe, maybe there's been some moments where you've opened a gift and what you've said is, this is exactly what I wanted, but what you were thinking was, can I return this? <laughs> or maybe you were thinking, I'm going to have to wear this the next time I see them, right? But maybe at some point in your life, it could have been Christmas or some other occasion. Maybe at some point in your life, you received a gift that just overwhelmed you. You, you didn't know what to say in response. It, you, you, you were just amazed and overwhelmed to be receiving this gift from someone else. It was, it was so valuable, and, and yet also at the same time you thought so fragile that, that maybe you even what went through your head was, I don't even know what to do with this. I, I, I don't know how to, how to receive this and, and, and how to incorporate it into my life. And, and maybe out of that sense of its value or its, uh, how fragile it was, maybe you thought, well, this is going to have to go up here on this shelf where it's nice and safe. 
Or maybe you thought, I think I'm going to have to put this in the safe deposit box. I, don't, I want to make sure nothing ever happens to it. Or, or you thought, I'm just going to wrap it up in 15 layers of bubble wrap, put it in the box, and it's going to stay at the top of the closet because you wanted it to be safe and secure someplace where it could never be damaged, but also someplace where it could never be enjoyed. And, and, and so a gift that was meant to bless your life, to transform your life, maybe it hasn't done what the giver had hoped it would do. It hasn't become what the giver hoped it would be for you because it hasn't impacted the everyday experience of your everyday life. So if Mark, if this was the moment where he intended for the curtain to close. If, if this was the, the moment in the drama where he saw, he, he expected the, uh, the, the image to fade to black, if, if this was for him the point at which he wanted to leave the story to us, then, then maybe, maybe it was because what Mark wanted us to do is to, to hear him whisper and say, this is, this is your gift. You now know the secret. You know the end of the story. You know what really happened. This is God's gift for you. And nothing you will ever receive in your life is ever going to come close to the magnitude of this gift. But it's no different than any other gift in your life. You, you now have to decide what you're going to do with it. You have to decide what it's going to mean for you in your life. You have to decide whether this is going to be a gift that not only transforms you, but has the capacity to transform others. You have to decide what you will do with this gift that God has given to you. Today we listen to the to the witnesses of the first men and women who trusted their life to this truth, to what they wanted you to hear and what they wanted each of us to know. That Easter is God doing the most unexpected thing in the most certain area of our life. Dead people stay dead. That's how the world works. But at Easter, God says, not anymore. Sorrow and grief and pain and uh, suffering, they always win. They always have the last word. But at Easter, God says, not anymore. Worry surrounds us. Addiction claims us as slaves. Broken relationships, broken promises. Some of us think that's the best that we can expect from life. At Easter, God says, not anymore. The worst thing in life is no longer the last thing in life because the cross was not the end of his story. That moment of suffering is not the end of your story either. This is the witness of the first who believed in this truth, who trusted their life to this truth. It's God's gift for you, they said. But you have to decide you have to decide what you will do with that gift. Is Easter a holiday? 
Or is Easter your every day? Is Easter something that you pull out of the closet, take down from the shelf, and celebrate one day a year? Or is Easter for you a new reality? a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of being, a new reality that is transforming every single aspect of your everyday life. Because it's God's gift for you, a gift that was meant to bless and transform you, but we, we all get to decide what we will do with that gift. Now, now you may ask the question, well, well how do I know? Like, how do I even begin to answer that question. And, and in the Scriptures, there's actually a way of, of speaking about this. There's a way that the Scriptures describe what the world will look like when God finally and fully puts all the broken pieces back together again. When the work of reconciliation, the work of redemption of all creation is done, there's a way in which that is described in the Scriptures. And the way in which the Scriptures describe that work in your life, in my life, is in fact the same way it's described for all of creation. So the image that, that is given is, is something like this. It's a, it's a seed, it's a place that is at the center of all creation, and the Scriptures say that, that there, there is a place like this that is the center of all of our lives. Uh, this is not a, a way of describing people who see God or see themselves or see the world in a particular way. This is the way all of humanity is described, that there is a place at the center of our existence. There's a seat there, a better way of thinking about that, a, a word that gives more clarity is the idea that there is a throne at the center of your life. And, and within each and every one of us, at all times in our life, someone or something is, is seated on that throne which means that in your life and in my life, there are times where what we find there is something that does not belong there. There's something that rather than working for our good is actually working in the exact opposite direction. So how do you know? How do you know what Easter means to you? Whether it is just that thing that's been wrapped up and set aside, or if it is in fact a reality that is transforming your life each and every day. Well, it really is as simple as this. If, if you would just close your eyes, I promise no one will mess with you. And take a moment just for you to be honest with you. You don't have to share this with anybody else. But take a moment and look, at, look within yourself. Take a peek and see. What's in that place in your life? Who or what is seated on that throne? Who or what is, is Lord of your life, King of your life? Who is guiding and directing your life? What is that? As you think about whatever it is that it's at the center of your life, is it, is it something that is nurturing in you peace? and joy, and love? Or is it something that is nurturing insecurity, worry, doubt, fear? 
What is it that you find at the center of your life? Who is it that is seated on that throne? This is Easter's radical claim that because of what happened on the cross and by the same power that raised Christ from the dead, God the Father has declared that Christ the Son is worthy of that throne. The throne that sits at the center of all creation and the throne that sits at the center of your life not set aside for later when Christ will come into that place of glory. He is already worthy of it and has claimed it as His rightful place as Lord and Savior of all the world. But is He seated there for you? That's the question that Easter demands of us. And that's the difference between Easter as a great and wonderful holiday and Easter as our everyday. Will you let me pray for you? Loving and gracious God, I give you thanks for each and every person who is here today. I give you thanks for their life. I give you thanks, Lord, for the gift that they are to the, to the people who they share life with. I thank you, Lord, for the way in which you have made them so wonderfully complex, your scriptures say. You've given them gifts and talents. You've, you've placed within their heart a dream of what life can be that's so beautiful. And so, Lord, on behalf of them and, and on my own behalf, Lord, I, I share our confession that we struggle to, to understand exactly what that means. We find ourselves in this tension, Lord, of, of, of finding something else there in that place where only you should be. And we pray, Lord, that on this Easter, you will help us to understand what it means to let you take your rightful place in our life, to find you seated on that throne. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that wherever we find what may seem to be a dead end. Wherever we find in our life a, a place where we are tempted to declare this is the end of the story, resurrection means that the worst thing in life is not the last. The cross wasn't the end of your story, and that will not be the end of our story either. Hear our celebrations today, Lord, and bless your people as we seek to make Easter more than a holiday, but the reality of our everyday. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.